Uh, We are in John chapter 7, and the idea, the main idea from this chapter is uh, John records 20 questions in this long set of verses. Uh, They're either asked of Jesus or by Jesus, and the answers provide insight into who Jesus is and why he came. Very Christmassy message, believe it or not, because as we're celebrating his birth, We want to know why he came. We looked into that last week a bit, quite a bit actually, and we will see that again uh, in this text. Yesterday, my six-year-old son Titus came up to me and he asked me if a person dies as a child, what age is he in heaven? And, uh, you know, I don't really have an answer for that, um, but I did ask him, well, what do you want to (laughs) be, you know? And he just goes, I want to be a kid. You know, I was like, wish and Disha, I don't know what I said. You know, I was like, well then, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I guess we'll see maybe is what I said. Um, and then I read a book and a guy recorded that one day, one of my children told me he had a Bible question for me. This is Matt Carter. That's great. I can handle it. Okay, dad, what's a mustard seed taste like? <laughs> and he asked, can, uh, can you eat it? And Matt Carter said, I've spent hours in Greek, Hebrew theology, church history, even practical theology, yet nothing prepared me for this question. Faith like a mustard seed, but what does that taste like? I would say mustardy. I mean, that's, I think that's an easy one. Um, so we got these 20 questions asked of Jesus or by Jesus, and they really can all be boiled down to three major questions, okay? This first one we're starting out with, Where is Jesus? Okay, very similar to last week. People were looking for Jesus, and they're going to be looking for Jesus again. Let's look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, uh, you might remember when we went into chapter 6, there are some thoughts that chapter 7 actually belongs right after chapter 5 and... um, And so there's some kind of flow things with that that may be helpful, but it doesn't have to be the case. Uh, When it begins with after these things, it does not mean immediately after um, what was happening last week in chapter 6. Last week in chapter 6, Jesus talked about he's the bread of life, came down from heaven. That offended the Jews and the disciples as well. And all the disciples except for the 12 left Jesus and the Jews uh, were upset with Jesus. Um, but as you look at the feasts in this chapter and kind of the way of the order of the feasts and the time of year that they fall, I won't border you with the name of the months, bore you in the way with, with the name of the months and how the moon fits into it all and this and that. But essentially, we're looking at six months after Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves in chapter six. So it is after these things, but it's not like immediately like the next day, all of a sudden he's in Jerusalem or thinking about if he should go to Jerusalem. Um, That hasn't happened yet. Uh, Verse two says that now the Jews feast of tabernacles was at hand. Uh, This feast was a feast that ran for seven days. Uh, Josephus tells us that this feast was one of the most popular of the three principal Jewish feasts that brought the faithful Jews flocking to Jerusalem. Uh, People who lived in rural areas and had to kind of travel into Jerusalem for this feast would bring their version of an RV with them, okay? Uh, They would bring some poles and some blankets, and they would make little booths for their families to stay in. Um, and, And people who lived in the city who would celebrate this feast, they would go up on their flat uh, rooftop and they would build booths on their roof and do what we do, uh, camp and pretend to be homeless when we have a perfectly good home uh, to live in normally. That's my wife. She's like, why do people camp? It's like, you want to go out and pretend to be homeless? That just doesn't make sense to me. So we never camp. Um, (laughs) But we are interested in any RVs that the church have to loan out. So, okay, anyways... Preferably with a toy hauler in the back. Okay, so um, I think, uh, so it was called the Feast of Booths uh, or the Feast of Tabernacles because they would remember um, their, their Israeli uh, wilderness wanderings, I should say, the, of the children of Israel. Leviticus 23.33 speaks of this, and we'll read this passage. I have a few kind of talking about it, but 
Leviticus 23:33, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, the 15th day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. Well, I want to remember this is a seven day feast as we hear of Jesus's time in Jerusalem during this time. Uh, on the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days, you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire uh, to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary uh, work on it. Uh, If you want to jump down to Nehemiah 8, after the children came back into Jerusalem during the building of the wall, uh, we have an account of this, that they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel Israel should go camping, right? They should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Hop down to Nehemiah 8.18. Also day by day, from the first day until the last day, uh, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Uh, In Zechariah 14, you have a prophecy that during the millennial reign... Um, we are going to go up to Jerusalem and celebrate this feast with Jesus. It's going to be exciting. And the millennial reigns a thousand years on earth where there are people kind of left over from, from this day and age that still have not, you know, committed to following after Jesus. And there will be, um, some discipline if they don't go up to worship at that time. I don't know what that popping was. I'm like thinking maybe popcorn up here. Oh, cool. It was okay. I was like, Oh, cool. Thought it was like a, someone put little bubble wrap underneath my feet here. Uh, so let's, so we got, this is the season. This is the time. Uh, it's in October, around October 15th. Uh, it's harvest. It's like a harvest celebration. We know something about that, right? Um, all of the figs and the olives and the wheat have been harvested. And now there's this celebration, thankfulness to the Lord for harvest. So let's go camping. Now, verse three. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for even his brothers did not believe him. So we have this interesting dialogue between Jesus's brothers, um, Some of you may have their names memorized, uh, but they are written down in the scripture. Two of them are very well known as James and Jude. There's also Joseph. There's some sisters mentioned in the scripture. Um, But at this point in Jesus's life, they didn't believe that he was, you know, really everything that he'd been saying he was. It's probable that they saw his miracles and knew that there was something fantastic about the miracles that they really did want him to go to Jerusalem and make himself known. But there was a little of this, you know, brother dialogue type stuff going on. You know, there's a little bit of antagonism in it. There's a little bit of let's see what you can really do here, even from his own brothers. And so in one way, it seems almost like a trap. On the other hand, they're kind of like, all right, like you're doing some amazing stuff. But if you're the Messiah, like we need to get this ball rolling and we need to start you got to show yourself publicly. No one that wants to make themselves known does all that you're doing just kind of up here in Galilee. you got to bust down there, get into Jerusalem, walk into the midst of the temple, and start bibbidi-bobbidi-booing this stuff and show people like, hey, guys, I'm here, Messiah, King of Kings. Like, let's kick the Romans out. And, uh, and, and Jesus is not on that timetable, all right? Um, he's that wise older brother. Um, but it says, it does say here that They did not believe in him, and that's most likely, they're struggling with that John 6 stuff. They're struggling with the the bread sent from heaven, you know, like, I mean, not really sent. I mean, I know there's like this legend in our house that mom was a virgin when you were born, you know, and, you know, there's just some crazy stuff, but it's hard for me to even wrap my mind around. Uh, Sent from heaven, uh, I don't know, bro. Uh, what about um, you know, that we've got to eat of you to be having eternal life? Like, I mean, brother, let me just be honest with you. It's not great for the PR campaign that you've got going on. And and so they kind of want him to, you know, stretch out this ministry of his and really make it more political, most likely. Um, 
we do see these guys in some different places in the scripture, these brothers. They're in Matthew 12, 46 and 47, trying to get into the house with Jesus, but there were so many people they, they couldn't make it. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, we read that the multitudes came together uh, again so that there could not so much eat bread. And when his own people heard about this, and they believe this is speaking of his mom and his brothers and his sisters, uh, that they went out to lay hold of them, hold of him, uh, for they said he is out of his mind. And so that gives a little bit of insight into how his brothers and sisters considered him. Um, maybe someone that's got some talent, maybe someone who's got some political future, but let's be honest, even our own talented politicians are a little bit crazy, right? So they're kind of like, uh, you know, he's going to go somewhere, but he's out of his mind. We got to go get him out of this house. Um, and so essentially, if you're really the Messiah, go make it public. What are you trying to hide? But Jesus's timetable is not their timetable because his purpose is not their purpose. Um, I just want to make a note, though, that these brothers will come to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, as the Lord of life. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 6 and 7, Paul is giving his resurrection uh, dissertation in the epistle to the Corinthians, and he talks at the end there that Jesus was seen by James, his brother. So what is it that made this brother end up becoming one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, end up becoming a writer of, a, of an epistle. What, what happened in him to believe in his brother? Well, bro was dead, but bro rose from the dead and hung out for 40 days showing himself alive. That was impactful uh, for these brothers. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we see that uh, by this point in the early church, it's Acts chapter 1, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers at the end of the verse were gathered together with the early church. So they, at this point, the family believed that Jesus was who he said he was. So um, D.A. Carson says, like so many of the superficial disciples, these brothers just could not perceive the significance of what they saw. And therefore, they did not penetrate to Jesus's real identity and entrust themselves entirely to him. And it's our prayer. We spent time last night at the pulse that, that you would not be at the place of these brothers. I mean, you might have some real neat connections, right? I mean, we're Americans, right? I mean, we're, we're like God's chosen nation, right? Or something like that. I mean, a lot of us maybe think that. Okay, good. Uh, you know, but you know, like I think if you're born here, you're like automatically a Christian, right? You know, our dollar bill says in God, we trust and this and that and the other and in George Washington and stuff like that. Okay. Um, I don't know about George Washington, but we just go there, don't we? I mean, it's just crazy. That's all I got. Like, I think I'm just a Christian, you know? And it's like, okay, so even Jesus's brothers and even his mom had to go through a time where they got past the superficial stuff of Jesus and received him and clung to him as the Lord of all creation, as the God who came to save and who did die on the cross to wash away their sins. And so I ask you, uh, have you been distracted with all the superficial stuff about Jesus and you've never surrendered your life to him as Lord and as master and as savior? And today, even right now where you're at, you might just take a minute in the quiet of your heart and just humble yourself and confess your sins to Jesus and receive from him life. He's the Lord of life. And so Jesus said to them in verse 6, my time has not yet come. But your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil so the brothers you guys can go up to israel or up to judea for this feast anytime you want and you can kind of go in any way and manner that you want my time's not yet um there's something that's going to have to happen six months is going to have to go by before passover will be taking place and he will be killed on passover as a fulfillment of that prophecy there's still some things that have to take place my time has not yet come. You can go 
anytime. So I'm not going up to the feast yet. I'm not going up right now. Uh, the world cannot hate you, he said in verse 7, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. And you know, that is the real boundary line for us as Christians when the world begins to hate us as well. The world has no problem with you being a churchgoer. I mean, oh yeah, you know, so uh, Shannon, you know, and Chris, and the Grave family, and the McKinnons, and you know, all it, yeah, oh yeah, they, they go to church. No big deal. I kind of picture them like going in the building and going out of the building. I don't really got a problem with that. You got a problem with them going to church? But the minute you start opening your mouth and confronting them with the truth of the word of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, mankind's unrighteousness and sinful condition and desperate need for a savior, all of a sudden you've crossed a line with them where they don't love you so much and they don't appreciate your church going so much. You stop laughing at their dirty jokes. Uh, you stop attending their perverted parties. You stop getting drunk with them. Uh, you begin to mention um, you know, the morality of the God of the Bible and his standard for righteousness, and you know they begin to hate you. And, and you may have experienced that as a Christian. You begin to open your mouth. All of a sudden, you know, you're not getting the cards from the family members. You're not getting the invites to the barbecues um, because they're beginning to hate you because of who you are and what you stand for in Jesus Christ. John 15, 19 says that if you were of the world, the world would love its own. You guys remember that time, right? High school, middle school, college, whatever it was. Maybe it was even just last year, you know. I did everything those perverted sickos did, you know. And they loved me. We were cool, you know. And, uh, and then I started living for Jesus. And if you've ever got to talk to Joe Papinaw and hear his testimony, this is his testimony, as many of yours as well, just living for the world and the pleasures of this life with good boys, good brothers that he grew up with. Um, went to high school with, lived life with, up into you know the 20s, and gets saved at Calvary Chapel, gets saved and begins following Jesus and leading his family to be followers of Christ, and then begins opening up his mouth to friends, and he begins to feel the pushback from that. And by God's grace, he has another friend that was right there with him, ended up getting saved through another avenue, and now there's two guys living for Jesus. Some of these other guys are just they're just continually hearing the gospel, and there's great conversations that are happening. Um, and I know that's many of your testimonies as well. Um, but it's what Jesus says, you know, if, if you were of the world, would love its own. You're just doing what the world's doing. But then he goes on to say, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so Jesus says, they hate me because my presence exposes their sin. Jesus is the light of the world and his light exposes what is hiding in darkness, the darkness of man's sin. Carson said, the world is precisely that which cannot receive him without ceasing to be the world. So these brothers are telling Jesus, come up and show what you can do to the world. But because the world is the world, it speaks of carnality, it speaks of the flesh, it speaks of the desires that are temporary. They don't want that. Until the world ceases being the world, they will not receive Jesus. In John chapter 3, verse 19, it says this was the, and we studied this a few weeks ago, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest its wickedness or their deeds should be exposed. And so, the Jewish nation at this point had two options in being around Jesus. They could come to him for cleansing, or they could hate him for exposing their dirtiness. And so we're going to see the religious leaders were plotting to kill Jesus because he had exposed their dirtiness. Jesus exposes sin. It's what he does. But here's the good news. Then he died for it. 
Jesus didn't just stand there with his finger outstretched at you and just tell you what a sicko you are and that you're going to hell. No, he shows you the condition of your heart apart from him. And then he goes and he pays the penalty for it and gives you his bill of clean sale. That's, it's like a doctor that would tell us that we're ill and have no plan to be a part of our curing. But Jesus comes and says, I've got the solution, I've got the cure, and I want to give it to you today. The brothers and their alignment with the world meant that they knew nothing of God's agenda. They were kind of divorced from God's time frame and his divine appointments. And so Jesus says, my time hasn't come to go up yet. You guys kind of have this one focus on the world and what's going on. I'm not there and I can't be there and I've got a purpose with God. Um, I like what Carson said. All appointments that ignore God's time frame are in the eternal scheme of things insignificant and And so Jesus knew what was significant and that there was a time frame that he was following. And so in verse 8, he says, you go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So he tells us, bros, you guys go on without me. Um, I'm not going up. My time has not fully come yet. Now, uh, your Bible probably has the word yet, where Jesus says, I am not yet going up to the feast. That's not in the majority of the original manuscripts. That's not a problem because we made a note of that. It's either perhaps a scribal edition so that we can understand why verse, I think it's verse 10, where we see that Jesus ends up going to the feast. And so instead of being like, he said he wasn't going to go, and then he did go, you know, um, we can understand there's a context and a purpose behind why he's not going with his brothers, because his brothers want him to go up and kind of show off and kind of, you know, peddle his wares in front of people and try to get a following and try to kind of clarify some of his odd stuff he said from chapter 6. And Jesus is like, if I went up there, they'd, they'd try to kill me or they'd try to make me Messiah. Either one of those things is not what I'm going for right now. Um, I'm, I'm, I've got a purpose to go up at one point, but right now I've got my own plan. So I'm not going up. And so the connotation is yet, okay? Um, So I'm not going up with you yet because it's not my time yet. Now, three times in this chapter, we're going to see that phrase that my time is not yet fully come, okay? Um, And there is a full time for God's purposes and for for his plan. One thing that's special about this phrase is that it is, you know, and it's been said by, by good Bible scholars that every sermon is a Christmas message, okay? I'm not trying to be cliche, you know, or get out of, you know, not having some kind of reindeer on the screen or something like that, you know? Um, but really, every message is a Christmas message. We celebrate what Jesus has done and coming and becoming flesh every week, every Sunday, and, um, and we see in this text, here we are, we're just in John chapter 6, last week, we were in, or last week we were in 6, today we're in 7, we see Christmas themes in both of these chapters, and here we see him saying that my time is not yet, when we know with the Christmas advent that there was a time frame that was perfect for Jesus to come and to be born a babe in Bethlehem. And I love Galatians chapter 4, and I'm thinking... Galatians 4, 4 will be our Christmas Eve text this Thursday night, so don't miss it. But it says this, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So we're going to pull that apart Thursday night, but notice there's this A fullness of the time had come. And it speaks of this great crescendo of human history. Uh, I can't remember who said it, but when history had reached a crescendo. and, And if you know anything about music, I mean, music is so fun. It's just such a great way of expression. Because there's this there's this thing in music as you're reading it. 
and it looks like an alligator. It looks like the, the less than or more than sign in math, right? And it speaks of, you know, if it goes this way, you're going to get louder. And if it goes this way, <laughs> you're going to get softer, okay? Uh, crescendo or decrescendo, I think. It's been a long time since I was in band. Okay, joy. Uh, and so when you think about it, all that we're reading in the Scripture, all of the Old Testament, as you're reading through the Bible reading plan, you're starting in Genesis, it's like it's on this end. And you go through the, these, uh, the Torah, you know, you're going through the, the creation account, you're going through the fall, you see the need of a savior, you're going through the covenants of God, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Noah, and, and you just, you, you go to the, the Jacob story, you go through the Moses and the Egypt and the wilderness wanderings and the giving of the law and the realizing that they can't keep the law. And it's clear from that point that they need someone to come and fulfill the law for them and they try, but they, they never make it, and this, that, and the other, and they find out, man, they need a Savior. They've been in captivity. They've been idolatrous. There's, their city has been ravaged and destroyed by many different powerful nations, and they are desperate. Now they're under Roman rule, and we need a Savior. And when you study orchestra, it's usually something like there's like a, a timpani, you know, one of those big drums, and sometimes they carry them on horses. Boom, 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 boom. You know, and someone's got the drumsticks and they're on the cymbal and it's just, and then someone's got like a, a big uh, French horn and it's, you know, and there's, it all just goes together to something's happening, all right? And uh, I didn't write any of that down. This is all just off the cuff. I know that surprises you. I did look in the mirror today. I was like, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Gotta do it. Okay. Uh, Uh, so the crescendo right the fullness of the time had come and all of human history was pointing to this moment when god would send his son and he had this plan and it was all prophesied that he would be born of a woman he would born of a virgin he would be born under the law so that he could fulfill the law he would redeem those and pay the ransom price for those who could never do the law so that we could be adopted as sons. And so when Jesus is talking in this passage about my time has not yet fully come, in a way it was, okay, kind of in the big picture thing, that time had come, the crescendo of human history, he, he came uh, on Christmas Day, you know, he came there born of a virgin, born in the manger, with the pomp and the angel songs and all of that, and yet with the humility of a manger and a stable and cow manure and all of that, you know, and uh, the back the backyard of an inn or whatnot, and um, and yet now that he's here, it's like there's a now there's a crescendo within the crescendo, okay, and so then there's Jesus's life and there's his uh, you know learning and and growing as a child and wowing people as a child and and then you know eventually kind of that begins to spread within his earthly ministry and showing himself and his signs and and multiplying the loaves and the fishes and teaching with authority and and casting out demons and healing all kinds of diseases and all of that is is wonderful but it is there's going to be a crescendo a full time when jesus is going to be betrayed he's going to be murdered by his own people he's going to be hung on a cross and that is just kind of this loud point of the saga, especially the resurrection, you know, as he rises from the dead in triumph. And so um, Jesus came at the right time in God's redemptive plan, and he will be betrayed and delivered up at the right time in God's redemptive redemptive plan. And so verse 9, when he had said these things to him, he, uh, them, he remained in Galilee, okay? And that leads us to kind of the second question, I guess we're not going second yet. Second question. We got two similar headings here. And so verse 10 tells us that his brothers had gone up. Then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Bruce says, even so, even though he went, his journey was marked by maximum discretion, which was exactly the opposite of what his brothers had in mind. In verse 11, here's that question, where is he? When the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? 
So it's kind of like the bullies are out looking for their victim. The wolves are searching for their prey. He was wise not to come in the manner that his brothers were taunting him as they would arrest him and they would try to put him to death. At the appointed hour, he would head to Jerusalem to crush sin once and for all, but not yet. His time hadn't come and so he kind of stayed in the shadows and, and was aware of the searching for him. Verse 12 There was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceived the people. And so some, no doubt, remember that he had done some good miracles. And so they simply concluded he's a good guy, a good man, even if they couldn't conclude anything very profound about him being the Son of God, the bread sent from heaven. In John chapter 9, 16, in a few weeks, we'll get there where the Pharisees will say, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And others will say, we'll kind of see that there's these arguments, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So there's complaining, muttering, and murmuring. And I talked about last week how that's kind of onomatopoeia, you know, where it's a sound that, it's a word that sounds like what it is, you know? So they're murmuring and complaining and muttering against him. So murmur, 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 mutter, 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 you know, complain, complain, complain. And he's aware of all of this, that there's division complaining about him. Verse 13, however, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. This is really a regular thing. We're not going to look at all of them. John 9, John 12, John 19. A lot of the different saints, even Joseph of Arimathea, would be cautious about how much they declared they were following Jesus uh, because they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of being put out of the synagogue, or they were afraid of being um, arrested or even killed. So, where is Jesus? Next question, how does Jesus know so much? Look at verse 14. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught so uh, perhaps there's, you know, kind of it's the middle of the feast, so that's, you know, three and a half days into this thing, and kind of the searching for him had kind of died down. Nobody found him. They kind of got distracted by the other things that they've had to do. Um, no doubt their booths had tried falling in on him a few times, like normally happens when you're camping, and so they kind of forgot, like, keep your eye out for that Jesus guy, right? Um, and, uh, and Jesus taught. He opened up his mouth in the temple, and he began speaking. In verse 15, the Jews marveled. Um, these are kind of the common Jews that are around and visiting during this festival. They said, how does this man know letters having never studied? I get asked that all the time. You know, it's like, Lakeview High School graduation? How do you even know what letters are? I'm like, um, you know, never done much studying, but my mom learned me how to read pretty good, and so here we are. Uh, and so there, there's a humble beginning in Jesus, and yet there was a study there. And Jesus is going to answer, though, and say where his learning came from. Uh, verse 16, Jesus answers them and says, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Okay, Every good rabbi would be able to kind of point to where he had learned from and who he had studied under and kind of reference his education. And Jesus is going to be able to point to, not that he went to any Bible college or the Hebrew University, but that he had, has been in heaven since the beginning before time, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, living in communion and friendship and fellowship uh, as the Trinity. And so he says where he got his doctrine, where he got his letters, if you will, my letters come from, they are his who sent me. You might kind of underline that phrase. I've got it underlined in my notes. His who sent me. Uh, it's a Christmas passage because it tells us that, that Jesus was sent from heaven. Uh, as the Chris Tomlin song says, only God of, only son of God sent from heaven. Uh, it, it speaks of the incarnation. It speaks of the commission and the mission of Christ sent out uh, from heaven. 
we tend to keep going to this verse because it's referenced many times in John uh, concerning a prophet that would come after Moses. It's in Deuteronomy 18, 18, where Moses says, I will raise up, uh, it's God talking to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And we know that Jesus is that prophet. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy. So where did he learn? Where did he get these, you know, he's never studied letters before. He's been in the presence of God. He is God. And, um, and so Jesus could have answered simply, I know so much because I'm God. It's true, but he gave a different reason. I know so much because I was sent by God. So look at verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will... He shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak from my own authority. Maybe you're reading the ESV. If anyone's will is to do God's will or NASB, if anyone is willing to do his will. I like what Matt Carter says. If you don't recognize God's will, it's because your hearts are unwilling to submit to God. He connects the head and the heart. He says submission comes before understanding. The gateway to the mind is the heart. And so you want to know the Lord? Then say amen to the Lord. Say whatever your will is, Lord, I will do it. I submit myself to your word. To put it another way, unbelief causes misunderstanding. If you kind of come in with just, just like, you know what, no matter what, is taught out of the Bible to me, I'm just going to counter it with unbelief every time and be a skeptic and be a critic and just harden my heart against it, then you will not understand the message of the Scripture. But if you open your heart to the will of God, then you'll know the will of God. And this tells us that there's more to being a Christian than just Bible studies or even just memorizing verses or having the footnotes in your Bible and your study Bible memorized. It's submitting yourself to the word of God. It's bowing under its authority and saying amen to everything that it says uh, to you. Remember, no one studied the Bible more than the Pharisees. And according to Jesus, no one misunderstood spirituality like the Pharisees. Okay, It's not just head knowledge. We need to have a heart that is willing to obey all that he says. Moving on in verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Man, a great way to spot a false teacher is if they're living for their own fame and glory, all right? That is one thing that the Lord says, do not touch, and it's the glory of God. Uh, a biblical, spirit-filled preacher will deflect compliments and give praise and glory uh, to the Lord. And so they're looking at Jesus. Who is he trying to glorify? He has mentioned multiple times that his will is to do the will of the Father and to bring him praise. So where, uh, I think the second question was, where did Jesus learn all this? Uh, third question here, who wants to kill Jesus? Okay, Remember, these are 20 questions boiled into six summary questions, okay? Verse 19, Jesus says, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So Moses gave the law. Uh, we have this in Exodus 24, 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the law and all the judgments. And all of the people who were gathered there at Mount Sinai answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And if you know the story, it was like two minutes later that they decided to build a calf and worship it and commit sexual immorality. Okay, so uh, that's just how well the whole law thing went and how well we're able to keep it. Like, yes, thou shalt not. Let's do it, guys. And then like Moses turns his back and is like, okay. And uh, it just shows I mean, we are a desperate case in desperate need of a savior. And so he says, Moses kept the law, but none of you keeps the law. He's going to tell them how uh, in just a little bit. 
uh, he, he asked them, why do you seek to kill me? Jesus knew their hearts and what they were up to. They wanted to kill him because Jesus has been revealing their dirty heart. Now, even though they're Pharisees and they're very religious people, they've got all the religious garb on. Jesus will tell us in Matthew chapter 23 that they have polished the outside of a tomb and whitewashed it. But inside of them, they're like a tomb that's full of dead men's bone and rotting corpses. Okay? They did a good job taking care of the outside and making it look all religious, but they never had their inside taken care of. They've never had a changed heart. And the thing that, they, that Jesus condemns them for is self-righteousness. They relied upon their own works, um, and he exposed it to them. It's been said that few things are as dangerous as being self-righteous. Think about it. What would motivate a group of self-professing religious hoity-toity law keepers to break the law flagrantly in trying to murder Jesus, breaking the law of Moses, which says, you shall not murder. What, what would take these guys that are nothing but religious and make them go, we'll make an exception for you? You know, and then the daggers come out of their eyes. What does that? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a dangerous sin that every one of us can fall into. It views ourselves as pretty good, pretty right, or if you're into the grunge surfer scene, pretty righteous, right? We look at ourselves as that. It's a natural thing, but it's naturally dangerous. It's deceptive. It deceives me about how good I am. The Jewish leaders love to compare themselves to the, to the sick and twisted in society. They like to compare their religiosity to the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the wine-bibbers. They like to say, man, I look pretty amazing compared to those sickos. But Jesus says, stop comparing yourselves to them and compare yourselves to me. And you're going to find that you have got a long ways to go. You'll never be right enough. When Jesus came, he forced them to compare themselves to him, God in the flesh. Self-righteousness deceives us about how self-righteous we are. You don't find many people that admit right out of the gate, you know what, I'm a pretty self-righteous person, (laughs) you know. No, they they don't like to be told that they're self-righteous. It's a sin that they try to get away from being condemned for. Self-righteousness often feels right. That's why it's so deceptive. The ultimate danger of self-righteousness is that it squeezes out any room for grace. Some of the least gracious people are those who think that they are so right and well-off because it's a good person. They have no grace for others. They see grace as unnecessary for themselves, and so they never give it out to other people. You see this so much in the churches and in religious circles. If there's any self-righteousness given a room in our heart, before we realize it, it'll spread to every corner of our life, and grace will be evicted. Due to this deceptive nature of self-righteousness, we tend to feel good about self-righteousness. And Jesus is calling it out right now in the Jewish leaders. He's telling them, you guys really love the law of Moses. You guys know the law of Moses. You have it memorized. But you're fine plotting murder and how to kill me. How do you get from here to here? Self-righteousness. So the people answered and said, you have a demon. (laughs) That was their answer to that. You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? More like, how did you hear about that? (laughs) Who told you about that? In John chapter 8, verse 48 through 52, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered and said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I don't seek my own glory. There's one who seeks and judges. 
goes on to say the Jews said to him in verse 52, now we know you have a demon. Okay, so they're just all about saying that Jesus had a demon. In fact, they're going to use a lot of his miracles even that he's going to do. And they'll say he does that by the power of Satan. And that's when Jesus gets into that they've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When they call the holy work of God in healing and mighty works satanic, they've crossed a line in their heart where they're just never going to believe the things that the Holy Spirit are calling them to believe. Look at verse 22. You guys doing all right? Man, this is one of the best Christmas services I've ever been to. I know, right? Okay. Moses therefore gave you circumcision. You hear about this at every Christmas message. We're going to call the young men up. Um, no, I'm kidding. It's funny, we were looking uh, in the chapel, as a little side note. We were looking in the chapel over here, and uh, we inherited this really cool like message board. Before there were projectors, old churches used to have these little slider boards, and you could slide messages into them. And we found the stack of messages that you could write. It's like incredible. There's so many, there's words that I don't even know what the words mean. It's like Episcopal stuff, you know? And so, and so we found like a whole lot of fun words to play with. And one of them is circumcision. And so we slid into the board, circumcision, and then Sunday in 2020, you know? It's like, it's going to be a great week, you know? Just had the chopping blocks all laid out. Okay. It was, it was before projectors. Thank you, Lord, for projectors. We don't have to go what we inherited. We can do our own things. Okay, so that was just a nice, they call those pit stops in preaching. Like, all of a sudden, you guys are like, okay. Okay. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. Because remember, it was before the law that circumcision was given. It was back from Abraham, right? Um and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath, okay? If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, verse 23, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Uh, and so circumcision is regarded in the law as something that makes you whole, as something that makes you true and uh, truly a Jew. And, uh, and so they were, by the law, supposed to circumcise on the eighth day. Now, what do you do if the eighth day lands on the Sabbath? We're not supposed to do works, you know? It says, of course, you know naturally that you can go ahead and you can circumcise on the Sabbath and that there's concession for that because it's all part of making you whole, making you true. It's fulfilling the law, okay? Uh, same as with, you know, it shows that there's something deeper, that if, like David, when he and his buddies were starving to death, they were able to eat the showbread because there was something deeper going on there. And here he says, well, back in chapter 6, you guys are still peeved that I healed that lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day and you want to kill me. And why are you so condemning to me when I'm just doing what made this man whole uh, when you do the same thing on the Sabbath day? Okay. Uh, and so as you go on, you wouldn't believe how much I just skipped in my notes to put it that way. Okay, just say thank you. We're moving on. You're welcome. Do not judge according to appearance, verse 24, but judge according to righteous judgment. Okay, so we've got to think about the righteousness of God and how they're condemning Jesus. And if they were really fair, they would not condemn Jesus, but they would rejoice in the work of God and that that guy was healed on the Sabbath back in John chapter 6. Uh, we're going to answer the question, who is Jesus? Okay, uh, And we're going to see his, his origin is from the Father. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? And so I, I kind of wrote down in my notes as I was reading it, they're sure bold to try to kill Jesus when he's absent from the feast, but when he's present, they're not quite so brave, you know, because you kind of get the sense that they're like, well, now they're not killing him. Now in all the conversations they've been having, did they realize that he is the Christ? 
What took them by surprise was the public nature of Jesus' proclamation, even in the face of such a threat. It's interesting to compare chapter 6 and chapter 7. Chapter 6 started with Jesus miraculously feeding the Jews with bread while they were out in the wilderness. Next, Jesus miraculously crosses the sea. On the other side of the sea, he talked about Moses, man of the new covenant. People didn't like what he said, so they began to grumble and complain, and many turned and walked away in unbelief. Now let's check out chapter, uh, rather, check out the Pentateuch, and you see the same thing had happened in them. In Exodus, God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness. While they were there, he fed them with bread from heaven called manna to get them to the wilderness. He miraculously parted the sea so they could get across. While they're in the wilderness, he delivered Moses and the old covenant. The people began to grumble and complain, and by the time they made it to the promised land, the nation turned and walked away in unbelief, unwilling to follow God and the chosen leader that he had provided for them. And so this festival that they're all at, this feast of booths, was to remind the Israelites and their descendants that God brought them faithfully out of Egypt, and they need to trust him in his plan and in his way. Don't be grumbling and complaining in how God provides salvation. So many times it doesn't look how you think it's going to look. And so they're, they're falling into that again, and they're beginning to grumble and complain. Look at verse 27. However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Now, we know that biblically and prophetically, you'll know where Jesus was supposed to be born, right? Um, uh, Micah, and we'll get to those in just a second, uh, but that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, but what they're referring to is, He's not just going to be like hanging out with us and being a part of like society. He's probably going to just kind of come in like out of nowhere on a white charger and, and save us. So it couldn't be this guy. And then they begin to um, consider you know, who he is and his family. Verse 28, Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, and you can picture him doing this. It speaks of he's shouting in the temple saying, you both know me and you know where I'm from. And I've not come of myself. Here's your Christmas passage for you. He who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him. Again, this tells us that he's from heaven. For I am from him, and he sent me. So ponder that this Christmas time. Think about how he had spent time with the Father. He knows the Father, verse 29. He's from the Father, and he's sent from the Father. And as he's sent, he's sent to Bethlehem. He's sent to the manger via Mary's womb. Um, Verse 30, therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because the hour had not yet come. That's the third time we read of it, the hour had not yet come. Verse 31, and many of the people believed on him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? It's a good question. They're essentially asking, could it get any better? Like in Matthew 12, 23, all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Could he possibly, this could be the Messiah. There's no hint, however, that these people had actually developed any deep understanding of the significance of the signs, grasping who Jesus really was. The next question that's asked in this boils down out of the 20 questions is, will you come to Jesus? Verse 32 is that the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. There's an interest in Jesus. Jesus is the talk of the town. And the Pharisees don't like it. And so they're like, we just got to go arrest him. In a sense, uh, the people talking about Jesus served, served as a signature on the arrest warrant. In verse 33, so Jesus said, um, and to them is not in the original, but uh, I think it's speaking, though, towards he's speaking to the common people. I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Speaks again of his heavenly origin and his heavenly destiny. 
And that death for Jesus would not be the end, but he would return to the glory that he had with the Father before the world was even created. In verse 35, then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Like, uh, where's he going to go? We, I mean, we're pretty good at hide and seek. I don't think he's going to get away from us here, you know. And uh, maybe he's talking about going to where all the Jews are that have spread across the world during like the Greek um, captivity period. And in verse 36, what is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me and where I am, uh, you cannot come. And then I'm going to I'm going to come back the next time I'm preaching you guys. I'm going to I'm going to spend time on this next section, but we're just going to read it together in our conclusion. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water." But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit has not yet come, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there's this question, will you come to Jesus? Like the Jewish common people, you may be having these thoughts of like, could this be the Christ? I mean, look at what he's done. Is someone going to come and do better than him? The answer is no. Jesus has come and he has brought salvation in fullness and entirely. He is the source of life. In him, all things consist. And he desires that you be a part of that life. And so it's just this beautiful, dramatic passage that on that last day of that seven-day Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up in the midst of, of Israel, of the people that he had chosen and called out of Abraham, out of the people that he has been leading for hundreds and hundreds of years, even being merciful to them, even still coming to them and giving them an opportunity for salvation. And he calls out to Israel, if anyone is thirsty, you can come to me, believe in me, trust in me, and I will do a work in you that it's just like you will thirst, you'll never be longing again. Like out of your heart, out of your inner being, out of that soul and substance of who you are will flow powerful torrents of life-giving water. And the application or the interpretation is given to us by the evangelist where he says, Jesus was speaking about the power of the Holy Spirit. One thing about the Old Testament, the Jews never had the power of the Holy Spirit. He would come upon select heroes every now and then to accomplish something wonderful, but then he would depart. And the fantastic thing about the new covenant is that after Jesus dies and and takes care of our sins, anyone who trusts in him will be given the Holy Spirit. God will dwell in them. He's going to give us a piece of himself. And he's going to empower us to know him. He's going to open our minds so that we can comprehend who God is. We can read the Bible and understand it and love it and want more of it. We can know God. We'll be able to say no to sin and yes to God. We'll be given gifts to be able to serve in powerful, crazy ways in this world. We'll be given courage to open up our mouth and preach the gospel. We'll have joy. We'll have love. We'll have peace and patience and kindness, gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Those are all fruits of the torrents of living water of the Spirit that are going to come out of us. And maybe today you're in a place where so many of the characters that we read of today, you're like a brother, you're like, I've been around Jesus my whole life, I don't really get it, seems a little weird, I think he should do something more. But that is so much of Christianity today. There's no personal, intimate relationship with Jesus, there's no life-giving Spirit flowing torrentially out of your heart. And you need to come to Jesus today and say, Lord, I come to you. Give me living water. The wonderful thing about this verse is it says the Holy Spirit hadn't come here in John chapter 7 yet. Why? Because Jesus had not been glorified and ascended back to the Father. But guess what day and age we live in? We live in the time that Jesus has ascended to the Father and now his job is to send the Holy Spirit upon anyone who asks for him. And so today as we close, 
I want to encourage you to move beyond just being like Jesus' brothers, like an acquaintance, maybe even a close acquaintance. I want you to move beyond being a self-righteous, religious person who just misses Jesus. You're just offended and you're lacking grace in every corner of your life because you never realize that you need grace for yourself. You can come to Jesus and say, Lord, I have sinned. Woe is me, a sinner who sinned against the living God. I need your mercy. I need the blood of the cross to cover my sin and wash it away. And I need this Holy Spirit that you speak of. And maybe you're not a super self-righteous person. And maybe you're someone who's just kind of like the common people in this passage. That are just kind of like, yeah, maybe, maybe this is him. Maybe, maybe, but hey, could he do anything more than, you know, and, and you're just kind of at that place where it's like, you just need to surrender your life to Jesus. Like, let go of whatever it is that you're clinging to and cling to Jesus and let him be this life-giving source for you, a forgiver of sins and the, the giver of life everlasting. So if we'll have the worship team come back up, you can set your things aside and We'll stand together.